Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Sharon Davis. On today's show, we're talking to Four Corners investigative journalist and former Middle East correspondent Sophie McNeil about her new book, We Can't Say We Didn't Know, Dispatches from an Age of Impunity. Sophie might be best known to you as a journalist who late last year was holed up in a Bangkok hotel room with a brave young Saudi woman, Rahaf, who was seeking asylum. Without talking to her editor in Sydney, Sophie had flown to Bangkok after she saw a tweet from Rahaf pleading for help. At the ripe old age of 35, Sophie has been reporting for almost 20 years. Her forays into journalism started when, as a high school student in Perth, she picked up a video camera and, without telling her parents where she was going, she headed off to East Timor to make a short film about the health crisis that was crippling the newly independent nation. She quickly moved on to work as a video journalist with the SBS's Dateline program and then in 2015 was appointed the ABC's Middle East correspondent. During the three years there, she reported on children dying of starvation in Yemen, the bombing of hospitals in Aleppo, people being used as human shields by ISIS and people from Gaza being prevented from getting cancer treatment by the Israelis. Her book focuses on many of the people she met, resistors, dissidents, valiant doctors, courageous people who take incredible risks to stand up for what they believe in. On the eve of the book's launch in Sydney, Sophie joined me in the studio. Sophie, congratulations on the book. Thank you. (laughs) I want to take you right back to the beginning because that's where you start the book actually. When you're 14 years old and you're thinking, I want to be a journalist. Why do you want to be a journalist? I think when you grow up in Perth, you um, are desperate to see if the rest of the world exists (laughs) because you feel so far away and isolated. So you're fascinated by the idea of what else is out there. Um, So there's, you know, just that basic desire to explore. Um, But I also uh, had become involved in like um, working with East Timorese refugees and I'd seen how brilliant journalism had really helped East Timor um, get the story out of what was happening there proof, the evidence of the atrocities, the horror of the Indonesian occupation. And, you know, then they had, they had the vote and they got their freedom. So as a, as a young teenager in Perth, that was an amazing example of the power of this profession. And so I wanted to join in. You mentioned a couple of journalists that you particularly admired at that point. One was John Pilger. The other was John Martinkus. Yeah, and also Max Stahl. So these are all people who, you know, snuck in, got the evidence and, and told the world. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, their, their, their work is incredible and I wanted to be just like them. And uh, I still just remember that feeling of, of 
yeah, being this student at a public high school in Perth and, you know, I was in like the social studies extension program and I, you know, did all this extra history compared to the normal curriculum and extra social sciences, but I'd never, no one had ever taught me about East Timor. And I just remember going home and reading um, Pilger's work in Timor and just being outraged that I'd never been taught this. You know, I was so angry um, and yeah, it really blew my mind at the time. And I, it was a really kind of, um, it was great the way that I think Timor made me an idealist <laughs> because I could see, you know, when things work, like that was a great example of the international system working, you know. Um, and my fear is that we're, we've um, gone a bit downhill since then, which is, yes, yeah, some of what I wrestle with in this book. Yeah, you said about those years and why you wanted to be a journalist was, I wanted to strive to make things better. Mm. And that's what journalism was for you? and still is. Okay. Yeah, that's why I do it. It's an attempt to make things better. Mm. Yep. I mean, uh, I've, you know, I work really hard <laughs> and I've, you know, spent a lot of years living overseas, away from family, you know, a lot of many weeks and days away from my kids, my husband. It's got to be for something, you know, it's not just a story for me. It's always for something bigger. Um, you know, uh, you don't get paid paid much being a public broadcaster, so it's not for the money. It's certainly not for the fame because, you know, um, people don't really like these depressing sad stories I tend to choose. So, yeah, it's got to be to to, um, to make a difference and to make things better for so, me. So it wasn't just about letting the world know what was happening. It was actually getting the world to take another step forward in a way. Well, that's um, that was really that incredible example of Timor, that's what I'd seen work so well. And so I think I was always striving to do a similar thing. You know, I always thought that if you showed the world what was happening, if you show them the horror, if you uncovered the truth and the evidence, that it would help lead to change. And in some cases it did. And, you know, I had some great moments over the years. I still remember the, you know, story I won my first Walkley for with Jeff Parrish at Dateline, um, our investigation into the deaths of five kids in Afghanistan. You know, there was there was then um, a really important investigation by the Australian Defence Force into that incident after our story. You know, those kind of... That gives you hope, you know, that you can create change. Um, I just think that the last five years in particular in the Middle East, the kind of litany of war crimes and the the... The real kind of breakdown, I it, what I see is a breakdown in upholding international law and holding people accountable. You know, the subtitle of the book is Dispatches from an Age of Impunity, you know, and I fear that that's what we've created um, because certainly there was nothing we didn't tell you about Syria. We all knew the kids were starving to death in Yemen. They still are. And they're still enduring that horror in in Syria as well. And, you know, Gaza just doesn't even get in the headlines these days and it's only getting worse and worse. So my fear now is that the, the truth has been a bit devalued and um, we've gotten used to this kind of level of horror and people are looking the other way. I want to come back to that in a while, that age of impunity that you talk about. But first of all, I want to talk to you about some of the individual stories in the book that you focus on. One of them is about a young man called... Khaled, 
and he's in a Syrian town, Madaya. Can you tell us about Khalid? Sure. Well, um, you know, like every other Syrian, Khalid just faced this moment where he had to choose what, what side of history was he going to be on. You know, he could have just kept working as a nurse, quite a you know, it was an okay paid job. He'd bought an apartment recently. He'd gotten engaged. Uh, when the revolution broke out in 2011, he could have just kept living that life. Um, but he decided that he couldn't just watch what was happening. You know, people were being massacred in the streets. Peaceful protesters were being gunned down. They were turning up in, at, at his hospital after they'd been tortured in army detention facilities. And so he was secretly reporting this evidence of torture to Human Rights Watch here and other networks of doctors across Damascus. And they also then formed this secret network of doctors and medical staff who would treat people in their homes. So it's just such bravery, you know, risking everything because so many people were being arrested at the time and they would raid hospitals. And, you know, he was stealing medical equipment from the government-run hospital to then go and treat these kids who were being shot in the streets at home in his apartment. And he... He actually ended up being the only medical practitioner in a town of 30,000. And so this young nurse turned into Dr. Hallett and he taught himself how to do life-saving surgery from watching YouTube videos. And, you know, he's a witness to war crimes. I mean, he he was a doctor in a town that was, um, you know, that town was starved into submission. Um, a horrific tactic of war that Assad used throughout the country. Food is a weapon of war. Try and starve people until they submit to your rule. And he documented that. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's one of just many incredibly brave, courageous people in the book um, that, you know, I try and pay tribute to. That's I just always felt like um, we needed to know more about some of the amazing courage these people showed. And I think we can actually learn something, learn so many lessons from them. I mean, his story is epic in mm. my view. It's like, it's it's just extraordinary to kind of, and it's so visual in your book, by the way, to see this young man watching these YouTube videos while he's doing a caesarean section mm. on a woman that he's never done before, like he's, he's amputating limbs, he's, um, what else is he doing? He's, um... Oh, he was trying to um, help all these hundreds of children who were emaciated and starving. You know, he, there was nothing to give them. The town had run out of food because it was surrounded by Hezbollah forces and Assad's forces and all he could give them was, you know, salts, like rehydration salts when all these desperate parents turned up at his clinic and... He was the one who took these photos and videos and he sent it to me to show me the evidence of what was happening. And um, we reported that and it quickly went viral. And, you know, within two days, Samantha Powell was holding up Hallard's photos at the UN and and calling out the Assad regime um, for this horrific tactic of besieging um, opposition-held towns. And, you know, aid got into Madaya, but um, Hallard's story is also a story of how, you know, we failed Syria. We failed heroes like Hallard because, you know, he did everything and we did nothing, <laughs> you know. Um, and after Hallard did all that, 80 more people starved to death in Madaya. And luckily Hallard has a good ending. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's quite that's, that story makes me ashamed as well. He did everything and we did nothing. Mm. Wasn't the very fact that you were reporting what he was doing, doing something? I mean, he's, I guess like I'm thinking say, we, like the international system, the world, you know. 
Um, and this is the theme I explore in the book of this idea that, like, we've run out of excuses. You know, I think that the noughties were full of a bit of hope that, you know, we set up the ICC and, you know, we're going to learn from from Bosnia That's and Rwanda. The, you the know. International Crimes Commission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, responsibility to protect. Um Never again, you know. That was the, you know, that was the movement that that we had we had learned how to deal with genocide, and we weren't going to let it happen again. Um, and that crimes against humanity w- would not go unpunished. Um, I think there was a lot of hope in those days, and my book really documents how, in the last decade in the Middle East, that you know the rule book has been thrown out the window, and it's not just you know horrific dictators like Bashar al-Assad who've committed all these war crimes and have targeted hospitals and targeted humanitarian workers. Um, The Saudi Arabian regime has been carrying out horrific war in Yemen using Western arms. Australia is a country that has recently tried to increase our military exports to Saudi Arabia. We work with the UAE as part of that coalition. We have very strong relations with the UAE. One of the most heartbreaking stories in my book is just this one Emirati man called Ahmed Mansour, who no one really knows about. You know, we just think Dubai is this lovely place to stop over on the way to Europe. But, you know, Dubai is run by the United Arab Emirates, which is an authoritarian, oppressive state. And, you know, Australia has a military base there. And we just turned a blind eye to what happens in that country. But there is one amazing, brave man called Ahmed, who's a father of four boys. And he called out that regime for their human rights abuses and you know, Ahmed's been sitting in a jail now for two and a half years, and you know the shake the, the shake of Dubai's come to Melbourne, and his horse won the Melbourne Cup. You know, he was celebrated. So I'm I'm trying I'm I'm hoping that through this book, people will will um, take some inspiration and courage from some of the amazing people I was privileged to. Didn't get to meet all of them. People like Ahmed, he used to follow me on Twitter. We used to sometimes message each other before he got locked up. Um, but a lot of them I also did get to meet in person. So the book is really a, a tribute to their heroic acts to stand up for what they believed in. A big part of the book is around the siege of Aleppo. And the way that you had to cover that siege in a way. You had to rely on people on the ground. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly frustrating as a reporter how do you cover a war where you can't go there. Um, but the thing is these days it, it's not an excuse not to cover it just because you can't go there because, you know, if that was if we just <laughs> didn't cover it, then, yeah, you'd hear nothing from large parts of the Middle East because so much has become off limits now to reporters. So you really have to use um, technology to uh, not only stay in touch with people but to verify information. Um, I was really lucky a few years ago to do a training course with Bellingcat, the investigative journalism body run by Elliot Higgins. And, you, you know, you learn how to watch video that gets WhatsApped to you from Syria and you learn how to verify the location by going onto Google Earth and spotting, you know, is that, they say it's this town. Well, does this town have a huge big water tower like that? Oh, okay, it does. Okay, let's match it up. Yep, yep, okay, that this video is real. And I had a few instances where I was sent footage from Syria where I had to use those skills. Um, so I think that journalists are having to change how they, they, they cover conflict and it's about having you know, trusted contacts on the ground. Um, we did this in, in Yemen as well, worked with a local producer, verified information, um, got got the story out that way. So, yeah, I, I think that um, 
I learned a lot about uh, covering Aleppo. It's never as good not to be there. It doesn't replace on the ground reporting. But, you know, we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, you know, I can't, get, I can't get to Idlib so we shouldn't talk about it. I mean, there's really incredibly brave Syrians or Yemenis, um, human rights workers, local journalists who are still choosing to stay behind, risking their lives to document things, we need to find a way of working with them more um, and making sure that just because you can't personally go there and put, you know, your man on the ground on the news doesn't mean it shouldn't be covered. Yeah, it it seemed to me that at one point you were actually almost being besieged by um, messages from Aleppo, by videos from Aleppo um, coming because people figured out that you would actually send them out to the world. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Like, you'd go, like, you know, back in the old days, um, you know, and at a point you could get into Aleppo. Um, So, you know, you might go there for three days and you'd report on it and then you'd leave. But, you know, when you can't go there and you're trying to report on what's going on and verify the facts, so then you just end up for, like, you know, a year speaking to people on the ground there, like, every day because – you know, you can't, I, I don't just use people, you know, oh, okay, I want to, you know, gonna, Aleppo's really big this week, so I need to get a few, you know, voices on tape for my radio package, so I'm going to check back in with my Aleppo contacts. No, like people are desperate. They're living in a war zone and you get to know them, you know, and they, they you trust them and they trust you. So, and you do, you just care about them as human beings. It's not just a story, it's real life. And so, yeah, you just check in with them every day. How's it going? You know, or they'd send you a, a photo every day. You'd acknowledge it. Or so, and it, it is quite taxing because you have those relationships over a long period of time. And to this day, people that I communicated with at the height of the siege of Aleppo, you know, every day, multiple, multiple messages, they're, they're now trapped in Idlib. You know, they've got bombs coming on them and their children from Midlib and I'm still getting those photos and videos and I haven't been able to leave my Aleppo WhatsApp chat group because to leave it would be feeling like I'm turning my back on it. And now I don't file every day on the Middle East. I don't file on news from from Syria. And some days I wish I could <laughs> because I feel like it's not getting enough coverage. But, yeah, I, I, I still have all those people in my phone. <laughs> Tell me about that hashtag that you started, hashtag... We can't say we didn't know. Well, yeah, that became the title of the book because um, I just one night um, had got these photos and videos from Syria of this little boy who was sitting in the back of an ambulance and he was stunned and just sat there and there was something about him um, that just seemed to really encapsulate like what had happened to Syria's children because he, it's, he was kind of just... You know, he wiped his his head that he had this cut on his head and he was bleeding and he just kind of looked at the blood on his hand and he just seemed kind of so used to this horror. He just sat there in his little, he had a cartoon on his T-shirt and that photo and video went around the world. You know, me and other journalists um, put it up on Twitter and there was something about that video that just struck me to the core and many others around the world um, and I just put on it put on this video when I put on Twitter, oh, look, you know, watch this video from Aleppo and then watch it again and, you know, tell remind yourself that with Syria we can't say we didn't know um, because there was just something about that moment and how, you know, it, there it was live, this poor little kid in the back of the ambulance flashed around the world and, you know, that nothing changed after that photo. You know, pe- 
people wrote opinion pieces and, you know, it was on CNN for 24 hours. And Abu Rajab, who's the main character of that Aleppo chapter, who's this incredible um, radiologist who was also the administrator of this famous hospital, M10, in Aleppo, you know, he said, like, oh, we thought after Omran's image, you know, went viral that people would help us. Like, maybe this would be a turning point for Aleppo, but nothing changed. And so you started this hashtag, but you were using it for more than that, weren't you? Yeah, I just wanted to remind people that that we've run out of excuses, um, that that this is the world we've created, you know, that it's – I think that now people know as much as governments have always known, you know, um, where people are being killed by who. It's all there. But – So when you couldn't get your those images up on a 7 p.m. news report – you put them on Twitter. I mean, a lot of the videos and photos I got from Syria were too graphic and never made the ABC 7 p.m. news. Um, and there was other points when I was covering Aleppo that, um, you know, I did a package and I write about it in the book how um, it didn't actually make it to air in Sydney. Other capital cities played it, but Sydney didn't play it. And I was really upset. And I was like, you know, why didn't you play my package? Like it had this horrifying footage in it. And they were like, well, it was a bit similar to yesterday's story. But the thing is, like, the people were still being pummeled in Aleppo. Um, the horror was still happening. Nothing had changed. Like, so, it's, you know, I was outraged that that meant that it was like, what, we're just used to this? We're just going to accept that this is what happens in Aleppo? Um, yeah, and, you know, the book's really honest and I talk about, like, frustrations with, with trying to um, cover some of these things. And, you know, I... I tweeted out the footage that didn't make it on the news and I, like, said, you know, I'm upset this didn't make the 7 o'clock news, you know, and I some of my ABC bosses weren't happy with that. But, um, you know, I just felt that that was the least I could do was to, you know, um, get get the, this out there. And, yeah, you became very frustrated when you felt it didn't get the attention it deserved. Did you find yourself rubbing up against the ABC bureaucracy very often? I had a, huge, a really free reign to file, you know, and um, I actually think I was there at a at a really great time. I had great editors who really supported me, um, and I think that if anything, I think the space for international news in Australia is shrinking, and I I worry that the ABC does less international coverage. It seems to get into our bulletins less, and that you know, I. I worry about that. I think, you know, these aren't articles people click on, that's for sure. Everything I ever wrote in a left book probably, you know, didn't have many clicks. Um, but it was there and it was documented. And, you know, often one of the best things you, you could do was put out an article and, okay, maybe no one in Australia read it or even commented on it because, you know, sometimes, the you know, these issues don't even run in Canberra very strong, like no one's interested in it really, but you'd, you'd get a lot of satisfaction when you might talk about something for the first time, a particular angle on something, and then some of your international colleagues might write about that a few days later. So you felt like you were helping shed light on something, you know, whether it was the kids starving to death in Medea or uh, particular ho- doctors in Aleppo or, you know, coverage of Yemen. So you felt like you started could get the ball rolling maybe on a bit of coverage. So that always felt good to do. But no, I was really, um, I had great, great editors and great bosses when I was working for the ABC um, as Middle East correspondent. And I I felt like um, it, 
you know, we, we put it all out there. You know, I mean, the Yemen story we did, phone correspondent, prime time, 8 o'clock Monday night, children starving to death in Yemen. Um, the issue is that, you know, three or four months later after we put that story on, Christopher Pine, the Defence Industries Minister, goes to Riyadh to try and sell Australian weapons. So, you know, the ABC did a great job of putting this all on and, and trying to show the world what was going on. But what frustrates you and, and makes you, you know, it's what I examine in this book is this idea of, well, wow, you know, what difference does it make? And and why, why do we not, why does it not generate this outrage anymore, you know? Just talking about that little boy and the filing of a report and then the ABC saying, well, we saw something similar last night. Is that the price that we pay at the moment for this kind of 24-hour news service, there, all this Facebook, Twitter, all this social media stuff that were kind of inundated with these images that they stop having the impact that maybe they once had? This is my fear and this is what I ask in this book is that now that we've got all this horror at our fingertips, um, has has this, this led to us feeling so hopeless and helpless that, you know, we feel we can't make a difference, it's overwhelming. So have we almost, like, shot ourselves in the foot as journalists by, like, bringing you all the horror live 24-7, here it is. Um, and now people are just kind of frozen with, with you know, horror and, you know, you, you, maybe do you, does it make people turn inward? You know, the rest of the world looks really scary, and it is, you know. It's really bad out there right now. And... So I think these are all, all things I want to explore and discuss in the book. Um, but I also just think that um, that we need to realise that it's not just contained there. You know, I try and talk in the book, particularly at the end, I, I talk about how we might think that, you know, these these horrors just stay in the Middle East. But when you, when you kind of break all those rules and there's no international system to enforce them, then how are we ever going to act on, you know, the climate emergency or rising authoritarian China in our region? Dictatorships, you know, Hun Sen in Cambodia, how, how are we going to try and promote democracy and, and, and human rights in our region when, when we have really turned a blind eye to, to so much horror over the past decade. And I and my, my book is like a call to arms to say that, you know, we need these rules urgently right now to confront these new threats. And, you know, if if the world couldn't come together and act on Syria, which is so tangible, like there it is, you know, they're, they're dying live for nine years, the people of Syria and the world didn't act. How are we ever going to come together, you know, to face something like the climate emergency? You know, we, we desperately need to uphold these rules, to enforce these rules. And, you know, this isn't a book for experts. It's not for Middle East buffs or international legal buffs. It's it's meant to be like a real um, kind of uh, explainer, I guess, like a basic explainer of these some of these theories we have about international law and how the world is meant to work and then the reality. So it's um, it's, it's yeah, it's not for experts, that's for sure. So you essentially think that the international system is broken? Yeah, I think that um, 
that that is what we have seen on the ground. This is the UN Security Council. Yeah, absolutely. This is the United Nations itself because I think at one point you're very critical of the United Nations in the book for standing back and letting particular things happen. So it's essentially all of those checks and balances that we've put in place probably since the Second World War. You think they're breaking down now? Yeah, I, th- I think they are. And I think... Um, that we as a country, Australia, we're perfectly placed to kind of lead in some of these areas. You know, we're such a a privileged, wealthy country, not all of us. You know, there's still many disadvantaged people in this country, but many of us have a really high standard of living, you know. 28 years of economic growth. Yes, we're facing hardship perhaps this year. We might have a recession, but, you know, we are so lucky. Um, And I would just love a middle power like us to use this advantage we have and privilege to really try and and make a difference. And, um, you know, it really struck me last year when Prime Minister Morrison made that speech about negative globalism. And, you know, I think that sent a terrible message to our region um, when you're trying to call out Beijing for what they're doing to the Uyghur people in Xinjiang, when you're trying to say to Hun Sen, I'm sorry, but, you know, you can't just lock up all the opposition like that and expect us to still send you aid. And, you know, there there is a real threat of authoritarianism. And when when we send messages that, oh, you know, like the UN system doesn't matter, we can make our own rules, like that is what I took from that, that speech that the Prime Minister gave when he coined that term negative globalism, um, you know, I think that sends the wrong message. And I, I really want Australians to 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 be courageous, to stand up like like the people in the book and think, you know, what, what can we do to make this place better? And what can we do? I think there's so, I think there's so much. I think that, you know, the the book is full of individuals. Individuals who through their own acts change some of them thousands of lives. I mean, uh, there's extreme examples like Rahaf, who's a young Saudi woman who I um, met and, um, you know, spent uh, several hours with in a hotel room in Bangkok. And that's one woman who stood up to her um, oppressive dictatorship, you know, a, a, a system of gender apartheid in Saudi Arabia and just said, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to accept that system anymore. I want my own freedom. And, you know, Rahaf helped lead to changes in the rights of women to travel for Saudi Arabia. It's like, that's the example of one woman. Um, you know, I look at the incredible work of um, human rights lawyers in the UK have uh, took their government to court for selling weapons to the Saudis. You know, the evidence of how some of these UK bombs had ended up um, killing and maiming uh, civilians across that country. And, you know, the court decision um, was historical. They had to um, put, the UK had to put a pause on selling weapons to Saudi Arabia because of the amazing work of, of these lawyers. I think, you know, you know Greta, <laughs> Greta Thunberg, I mean, there you go. I think that there are examples wherever you look of people who have stood up and made a self-sacrifice for the greater good. And I think that um, this is something we can all do in our own lives, whether you're passionate about human rights, whether you're passionate about the environment. Um, there, there is so much work that needs to be done. People just need to start doing more. <laughs> so you're talking here about active individual courage in a way. Is that what you were doing when you got on that plane to go to Bangkok and hold yourself up in a room, a hotel room with that young Saudi woman, woman that you just talked about, Raha? Uh-huh. Look, I... Um, 
there was a lot of history to that. There was another woman who, Dina Ali, who um, had been trying to get to Australia, was stuck at Manila Airport, you know, a year and a half earlier, and I'd heard about a story on Twitter. And then Dina disappeared, you know, and she hasn't been heard of publicly since. And her family, you know, Dina's plea went out on Twitter, nobody helped, and Dina's uncles flew there, bound her arms and legs, put you know, gaffer tape over her mouth and, and dragged her onto a plane screaming and took her back to Saudi. And I just always felt so horrified by that story that I'd seen it and, you know, hadn't done anything. And so when Rahaf's story, you know, I just saw it on Twitter one morning, I just thought, I, you know, I couldn't live with myself if I had thought that, you know, um, giving that story a bit of attention, being a witness, documenting, you know, like this is it. A white woman holding a phone, filming and yelling and demanding to know what's going on. I mean, this is a power that I have. I'm privileged. I want to use that privilege to, like, you know, go to Bangkok. And if they're trying to force Rahaf onto a plane, just like they did with Dina Ali, I thought if I went there and was there filming it and asking questions, I could have perhaps stopped her being deported back. That And that document. And if they it didn't work, I at least would have the video evidence of what they did because we never had good video evidence of what they did to Dina Ali. And in the end with Rahaf, I mean, she was so brave and courageous, courageous by locking herself in that room with me in it too, um, that, you know, it never got to the point where I had to, you know, film, be filming as they tried to bundle her onto the plane because she just refused to move. You know, she built this barricade and she was an amazing example of such a courageous, brave person. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of power to um, documenting things, but and sometimes it works out like with Rohaf's case and other times, like Hullard's case, you know, you show the world that the kids in your village are starving, you show Samantha Power, the US ambassador to the UN, she shows the General Assembly, she tells the UN to send them food. That didn't make any difference. So what cuts through? It's hard to know. There's a danger though, isn't there? There's a danger that people see you as crossing the line, as mm. becoming an activist rather than a journalist. So how do you weigh that up as well, particularly in the case where you're on a plane, you haven't talked to your bosses, <laughs> you've just made this decision and you're off, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I, um, I've been journalist now for 17 years and I got to the point where, you know, I'm against war crimes, I'm against starving kids to death, I'm for, you know, I'm against gender apartheid in Saudi Arabia, you know, I'm, I'm, I am against those things and I'm comfortable with saying that and I will, you know, stand up for that and I think sometimes we need to be braver in calling a spade a spade, you know. Um, it is wrong what is happening in Saudi Arabia. It is terrible what they do to women. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia is is committing a war crime in by what they're doing in Yemen. I think that sometimes the 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 public wants you to to not take a position but just call it for what it is. And um, I guess I I've you know, been working in and around the Middle East now for, you know, since I was 20, I'm just turned 35. Um, I've, I've reported from all sides, you know, like I've, I've seen the war crimes committed by the Saudis, the Israelis, the Syrians, um, you know, the Iraqis, coalition accused of not taking enough care in Mosul and Raqqa. That's a 
That's a big part of the book. I examine our campaign there and allegations from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch that we didn't carry out that that campaign against ISIS in a way that prioritised civilian lives. Um, you know, I've really documented all all of the sides. So you can't accuse me of being on any one side, you know, um, but what you know i'm on the side of civilians you know i'm happy to to say that and if anyone has a problem with that then um yeah, too bad too bad that's that's just where i'm at right now <laughs> you talked in the book about feeling broken what did you mean by that I talk specifically about this this concept of moral injury and so it's different like people always talked about post traumatic stress disorder and um there's this this new kind of term that they use for um, they've used it for soldiers, humanitarian workers, but I also think it applies to journalists. And it's when everything the like the order of the world as you knew it, you believe it no longer exists, and it's called moral injury. And I talk about this in the introduction and this idea that you know if you're a teller of truth, if you have devoted your life to telling the truth, and you thought that by telling the truth that that would you know, help stop that horrible thing that you exposed. And then when you get to a point where you realise that's not the case and and that the the system doesn't work the way you thought it should or did, um, that the rules weren't upheld, that, you know, you can expose these things and nothing is done and that, that it creates this this feeling of, of, of moral injury. So I explore this. It's quite a complicated concept, but I think it's quite applicable to how many um, reporters and humanitarians feel these days. And yeah, actually, I was lucky enough to go and talk to Medicines on Frontiers about my book today. And they talk a lot about this um, in their work. And um, yeah, you, you feel kind of broken by um, this lack of cut through and not knowing, you know, what what works. Um, so these are some of the, the things I, I explore in the book. And um, I'm, yeah, not don't have all the answers, but I'm asking a lot of questions and I'm hoping that the very least I just want people to um, meet these heroes, meet these amazing, courageous, brave people that um, continue to give me so much inspiration. And I just hope that we can, you know, take a bit of that courage into our everyday lives. When I saw you recently in Adelaide, you were talking about you talked on a panel about thinking about leaving journalism, about going somewhere where you felt like you could actually do more good. Yeah, I, st- I, I you know, I've only ever been a journalist. Um, you know, I started when I was eighteen, and um, I, I, you know, I this this book um, is me kind of examining some of these stories and what difference they made um, and what difference this work does. And I do think that things have changed a lot from when I wanted to be a journalist, from when, you know, um, Martinka snuck into Timor and got out that evidence when Max Stahl was there filming the Santa Cruz massacre. You know, the world was horrified and they acted. And, you know, I think the world has changed and I really want to think about where does journalism go now? If you if you are, you know, c- committed to doing this kind of work and and and... Um, really interested in in uncovering evidence of you know this litany of war crimes that that we see these days. Yeah, h- how should we work? What what approach should we take? And and why? And 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 how? In some ways, you know, has it meant that that audiences, you know, people, the population has turned off because all the horror is there now at our fingertips. You know, these are some of the ide- ideas I wrestle with and explore in the book. So Sophie Mc. 
McNeil started at age 14 as an idealist. Is she still an idealist? I think so. Um, you know, every few years you'll something will really help you um, keep going. <laughs> like Rahaf's story and the difference she made um, uh, really, you know, gave me a lot of um, inspiration for quite a few months. Um, so I'm just waiting for that next, <laughs> that, that next, um, yeah, moment that will, you know, show me that change can, can be achieved and that, yeah, it's, that it does make a difference. Well, Sophie, I hope you hang around in journalism for a lot longer. And I think the book is an essential read and does make you walk away with a lot of questions that you want answers to. So congratulations. Thank you so much, Sharon. <laughs> ABC investigative reporter Sophie McNeil and her book, We Can't Say We Didn't Know, is available online and in all good bookshops. A percentage of the sales of the book are being donated to Medicine Sans Frontieres in Australia. This edition of The Fourth Estate was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank them for their continuing support. You can subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app to hear us talk media, politics and a few things in between. And tell your friends about us so we can share this unique insight into our media. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter, our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to our producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Sharon Davis, and thanks to you for listening.